It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny. This is my show. And that is a slightly subdued intro today because we are talking about the meme machine, the maniac, rollerball Mark Rocco, one of the greatest professional wrestlers this country has ever produced, one of the most influential professional wrestlers this ever produced, this this era has ever produced. Now rollerball Rocco was indeed from Manchester, so it would be remiss if we did not have someone of Mancunian ilk, even though he's not actually a Manc, but he does live there. Will you please welcome Mr. Alex Watt? How are you, sir? I'm good. Yeah, I was about to say, like, I'm, I'm Manchester living, but Liverpool bred. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. It's, you know, a shame it has to be under these circumstances, obviously, with, with Mark Rocco passing away the other week. But yeah, we couldn't not, you know, talk about what an incredible career he had and the, his legacy and his influence and, and everything else. And yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to chat about some of these matches, which I hadn't actually seen before. You obviously uh, put the playlist together, and it's been it's been very interesting. It certainly has. I mean, this is this kind of episode can actually be in two of our series. It's in our Brit Rest series because obviously it's a key part of Brit Rest, but it also would work well in the Beginner's Guide to Japan because Mark Rocco was such an influence in both places. Um, Mark Rocco was the son of Jumping Jim Hussey. Jim Hussey was a heavyweight. He was a wrestling genius. We talk about people like Vince McMahon and um, Antonio Inoki, I guess, and Giant Baba being absolutely brilliant wrestling minds. Jim Hussey was one of those wrestling minds. There was a story I heard about him that he wrestled Andre the Giant one night, and then famed Dundee, like George Kidd, had no one to wrestle the next night. And Jim Hussey said, wrestle me. And George <laughs> said, but you're a heavyweight. He said, it's all right. We'll have the first to five falls. And you can, I have to get five on you. And you only have to get one on me. And they did. <laughs> and it tore the house down. Because Jim Hussey was an exceptional professional wrestler. And also was a man who could drop kick and land on his feet. Sorry, just to chip in. That's um, something that one of the commentators said during one of the matches that he could what drop kick him off um a pocket handkerchief connect with the guy's shoulder and then land on the pocket handkerchief again which was a very uh, british way to put <laughs> very british wrestling commentator way to explain how good he was at performing a drop kick yeah jim hussey was on a different level <laughs> <laughs> he was he was superb and he raised up Mark Rocco had a, had a daughter as well. And Mark Rocco kind of got interested in professional wrestling when he was in his, uh, around about 12, early teens, and started to show interest. Uh, but his dad refused him. He said, no, you shouldn't be a professional wrestler. You shouldn't be doing this. Um, and so when Jim went off on tour, Mark would sneak into the gym and take lessons with Colin Joynston and the other pros all from Manchester. <laughs> Because Love that. Love that. and and let kind of learnt behind his dad's back to the point where when he was about 17 they went to a show in Yardley just south of Birmingham and he went with his dad and Colin Joynston just to go see the show and there was a bunch of wrestlers from uh, from Uddersfield I think he said it was that didn't turn up uh, because it was that foggy no one could see 
And there was only about mm. five guys in the dressing room. And Colin says, well, Mark can wrestle. And Jim said, what? <laughs> he said, Mark can wrestle. He'll, he'll wrestle and we'll, I'll wrestle him and I'll look after him and we'll do it as an exhibition match and we, we've got a show then, haven't we? And he was like, so then obviously Mark had to explain to his incredibly scary father <laughs> that he was actually been learning to wrestle since he was 12. And as, as he put it, he said, I, I, after one round, I reassessed my career prospects as a professional wrestler after going three <laughs> minutes with Colin Joynston. Um, but there you go. That's how he got his start in the business. He next got a, a show with, with um, the Brighton promotion out of Manchester it was part of joint promotions through Max Crabtree and pretty much never looked back he became a professional wrestler full time and his dad said to him don't take the name Hussey until you deserve it you make your own name and he became Mark Rocco and then Rollerball Mark Rocco but we're not at the Rollerball stage yet now the first match on our playlist that I've put together is against Steve Vidor and I chose that, we're not going to talk about it because we want to go in depth with a bit later on in his career but the match with Steve Vidor really gives you a nice outlay as to what Mark Rocco is all about. By this point, it's 1977. He'd been wrestling for seven years. He'd done his apprenticeship. He went all over Europe. He went to the snake pit to learn how to fight shoot style. He went to France to learn how to do that aerial French style that they had. He went to Spain and fell in love with their style of lucha libre in Spain. He went to Greece. He went all over the place to learn his trade. And of course, hacking the boards for joint promotions all the way through the 70s until he got to the point where, he's de- as he described it in interviews, he was second on the card, but the heavyweights didn't like him being on the card purely because he tended to outwork them. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> back in those days, if you watched a wrestling card, the before matches, the first match would bore you to tears. The second, <laughs> match, the second match would get you back up out your seats again. And that's where Mark Rocco was. And then the third match would be a technical slugfest of a chess match to get you excited for the main event. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Mark was kind of in the second match stage by the time you get to the mid to late 70s. But our first match is really where that second match on the card, because I believe this was a second match on the card, really started to pay attention. Because he gets into this feud with another man from Manchester, really from Oldham, but he has a job at Manchester Market. And that man is Marty Jones. Marty Jones was a snake pit graduate seven years as an amateur wrestler, uh, trained under Billy Robinson and Billy Riley. He was tough as they come, was as technically gifted a professional wrestler as Mark Rocco was, and was essentially the babyface equivalent of Mark Rocco. And they both had the attitude that you make the absolute best match you can. That's what you're there for. You don't pull anything back. You put everything into a match you possibly can to make it not just the best match that's on the card, but the best match that has ever been mm-hmm. every night. Mm-hmm. And that's where they were coming from, and which was completely different to everybody else in the British wrestling game. Not everybody, but the majority of them, purely because um, they had work to go to on Monday morning. This was not a full-time occupation for the majority of wrestlers in the UK. So I've talked a lot. Alex, having watched a lot of these matches, what do you think about these early days of my, uh, Mark Rocco, before we talk about the feud with Mike Jones. Um, yeah, so in terms of first, like the, to pick up on what you said about like Rocco and Marty Jones, like you said, it's kind of the feud that made both guys and they were the perfect foils for each other, really, like both being from 
from Greater Manchester, but like opposite sides of the coin in in their looks, their attitudes. You know, Marty Jones was very clean cut and about respect and technicality. Then Rocco obviously had glorious mustache, bit of a mullet, borderline mullet, not quite, but very shaggy hair. You know, very brash. Took any kind of opportunity to bend the rules. So they were both masters of their craft, great workers, great at work in the crowd as well without, um, you know, playing on people's emotions without overdoing it. It all felt very realistic. So you can see, like, what you were saying about how they wanted to have the best match all the time and why they worked so well together, you know, in terms of, like, the wider thing before we talk about the matches themselves, like, it's been telling how, you know, with the news of Mark Rocco passing away, all the tributes that have poured out to him, you know, because he was such an innovator, you know, he was a guy who was ahead of his time, especially when it came to like this junior heavyweight wrestling style. You've just spoken about how he went all over the world to, to learn his craft from all these different styles. And you can see it when you watch him and particularly as it evolves over the course of what, 10, 15 years of matches, I think, we're, we're covering here, where you see all these styles start to get incorporated more and more, and how, yeah, that became this junior heavyweight style that now, you know, there's a reason why, you, obviously, loads of British wrestlers were paying tribute to him, but, like, you see, like, Chris Hero, Christopher Daniels, people like that, who kind of took that junior heavyweight style and and ran with it and modernized it and Rocco and Marty Jones and then you look at that whole generation of like you know Dynamite Kid, Fit Finley, David Boy Smith, Steve Wright were all in there as well like it was a it was quite a good generation <laughs> of wrestlers who were you know innovating this style drawing on you know the technicality of the British wrestling but then bringing in the hard-hitting style of Japan high flying from mexico um yeah uh, you can really see that they were drawing on all these influences and yeah it's he's obviously like not just a british wrestling legend he's like a wrestling legend and yeah just that's what that's why i was really excited to to do this podcast because i know about rocco's legacy and how you know how influential he was but i have to confess to my shame i haven't seen perhaps as many of his matches as i should have done so it's been really interesting to go and look at these and like i think the first match we're going to talk about between rocco and jones is from like 1978 and it's it's crazy how ahead of its time it is yeah you're right i mean the first match we're looking at is, is 78 and by this point um jones is the up-and-coming heavy middleweight Rocco is kind of established in that bracket he hasn't won a championship yet he will do shortly after this particular match he'll beat Burt Royal for the heavy British heavy middleweight championship in a bit of a classy feud Burt Royal was the ultimate heavy middleweight at the time he was the king of the hill you know the fabulous Royal Brothers were literally bigger than the Beatles back in the 60s and early 70s <laughs> you know there are pictures of the Beatles went to shake their hands and of course, if you're, than, if you're bigger than the Beatles, that means you're bigger than Jesus, right? Of course, so, of course. Of course. So Bert was the man as far as it, it was concerned. He'd been that champion for a long time. And Mark Rocco was the perfect guy to take it from him. 
and establish himself in that mid heavy middleweight division. And that championship pays a lot into the story of these two wrestlers, as we'll see in these matches. And that's what this feud was all about. So the this match is is just phenomenal, just because the speed of it for a start. I mean, the match clocks in at 29 minutes. This was on Saturday afternoon telly. That's the majority of the show. If you think you had 45 minutes of wrestling on at World of Sport, that takes up the whole show. And they didn't cut any of it. They put the whole thing on. So that's, mm-hmm. that's one thing tells you how good it is. The crowd are absolutely wrapped into it. And if you stuck this on AEW or Impact, maybe not WWE because it's the wrong style, but if you stuck it on any of the big shows, it would work today. It's not as risky because, you know, they didn't take as many risks. And it's in a British ring, so you can't take as many risks. You'll break your back. (laughs) (laughs) But equally, they're after it. This is a technical wrestling classic, but it's subtlety. It's not in your face. Rocco is a guy that doesn't care whether you boo or cheer for him. But Jones is also a guy who doesn't care whether you boo or cheer for him. It's just that Jones is virtuous and Rocco is direct. And that tension between those two very similar characters who come across as the best in the business is what really makes this match work. What's your thoughts on this, Alex? Yeah, I 100% agree with what you just said. Like, I think it's crazy to, to watch this and it's from 1978. I think... I always think this when you watch matches from this period and people, I think, now talk about how, you know, how fast paced the business is and stuff like that. But I think they're they're forgetting like how innovative like certain areas of wrestling were in like the late 70s, the 80s, the early 90s, because maybe they view wrestling through kind of a WWF, WWE prism um, that they forget that there was this crazy stuff going on all around the world where yeah you could show this today and it does it does hold up like the pace is is rapid and you know the story is creative as well although like um Rocco's obviously healing it up like an absolute boss I think like the story is is quite creative as well because it's interesting watching a lot of these matches are like two out of three falls matches from the British scene that we're, we're going to talk about. And it's always interesting to go back and watch like two out of three falls matches from that time or ever really, because they always tend to follow a structure of the baby face loses the first fall and then wins the next two, because that builds the drama in, I guess the most logical way where the good guy has to overcome the odds. But, um, you know this this match doesn't do that like marty gets the first fall by kind of outsmarting rocco and then it's rocco who ends up getting one back pretty quickly but i i like that they were they were being creative with these stories and then the match ends when like marty flips rocco to the outside and he gets counted out which was you know kind of unexpected and when you say about them not taking many risks i think that's that's true overall but like Rocco was I mean renowned for how hard he bumped and like you say in like those British rings it's it's pretty wild to to look at how many bumps he was taking how hard he was taking bumps on like backdrops and monkey flips and yeah getting dumped to the outside pretty brutally at times um and yeah like you say the crowd were were so into it that 
uh, an old lady actually kicks Mark Rocco in the arse at one point when he gets thrown out the ring because, yeah, the old ladies fans of British wrestling are, of course, legendary for a reason. Um, but yeah, you you watch the you watch like this feud and these matches. No surprise that like Antonio Inoki caught wind of it and wanted to like bring these guys to Japan because, yeah, it it's just so fast paced for 1978 in what woking it was it's it's kind of crazy yeah it is it's like woking town hall was <laughs> <laughs> that, that steve vito match was from last of all the steve vito match was from uh pickett's lock there you go there you go <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah i mean it is it's like these are literally the best two technicians in the world wrestling in town halls in front of a thousand people who've all paid two quid to go see them it's insane in in that sense you know it is like my local wrestling hall was memorial hall cleethorpes and it had the best wrestlers in the world satura sayama tiger mask dynamite kid bret hart all these people wrestled in memorial hall cleethorpes and i got to go see every third sunday these incredible wrestlers who were the best wrestlers in the world we didn't know it at the time Mm-hmm. They are literally the guys that run the industry now. Dave Finley, I saw in the Memorial Hall Cleethorpes, is the one of the most important producers in WWE history. You know, it's it's insane. It's really insane. Uh, the next match we look at is a bit further down the road in 1981 in Burnley. It was from December 1980, and what had happened by this point was Marty Jones was the light heavyweight champion. Mark Rocco was the heavy middleweight champion, the neighboring weight brackets, because Marty in the previous two years had put on quite a bit of weight he'd filled out. And the previous year, there was a catch weight contest uh, tournament that Rocco won, beating Marty Jones. And this was what happened after this. It developed the story a little bit further. Because there's only so many times you can go with the same two wrestlers, especially as they'd moved into different divisions probably sensibly to keep them separated so you could have as many matches with them as you possibly could because they're that good mm-hmm. so this is best writing again so it's manchester area it's the the northwestern promotions in joint promotion with best writing um they did a lot of work out of manchester obviously um and you i, I just love what i'm watching it as we we're talking about it and i like I forgot that you know world of sport used to run the tip the, the the scores <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I really United enjoyed United that too. Yeah. yeah, Manchester United versus Altrincham. <laughs> <laughs> like, really? We played each other once. Uh, but yeah, so this is again, it's a very similar kind of match, but they're a bit older, they're a bit wiser, and the match develops at a much faster pace. And it's another notch of violence and another notch of technicality. They're getting better at this. What's your thoughts on this one, Alex? It's interesting you. You say they're getting better because I think that 78 one is kind of held up as like the best match they ever had. But you're right. You can see how they're evolving as wrestlers Um, because like there's a moment, I believe it's this one, the the Burnley one 1981, where the ring breaks slightly at the end and like one of the boards underneath the ring comes loose, um, which... I doubt was intentional, <laughs> but they just, they, they don't ignore it. They draw attention to it. They start using it as part of the match right at the end and like using it to add like an extra layer of kind of brutality and 
you know, this idea that they hate each other this much, basically. And, you know, that's stuff that you watch wrestlers like now. Um, and sometimes you're like, they, they're very set in we have to do the spot. And, you know, they don't necessarily work with what happens when things go wrong, things change. And that, that's what makes the best wrestlers stand out is when you can evolve and adapt a match based on, you know, things you don't expect to happen. Um, and yeah, the, again, like watching this, um, watching like this series of matches, it's just like, besides like how technically great Mark Rocco was and, you know, we spoke about how innovative he was, how, He's such a hard bumper. It's these kind of like heel tactics that again are like, you know, not a lot of guys would were doing that kind of stuff. Like just how he could be so creative with how he was going to bend the rules. Because in, you know, British wrestling, it was very, you know, these are the rules. We have this many rounds. You're going to get warned. If you do this, you're going to get a public warning. If you do this and Mark Rocco, like, I just love the way he was able to like use the rules to his advantage, essentially. And you get like a moment when Marty Jones ends up getting warned for jumping on Rocco with a scent on, which is the crowd are furious about it. Um, like I say, so good at working the crowd to their advantage. Um, uh, yeah, again, just just a really well-paced, well-worked match. I think this one probably slightly smarter pace than the 78 one you could say and you can see as we go through the matches because i think this is over the course of a decade we're going to talk about the mark rocco marty jones matches and they're all you know there's a similarity to them all but there are differences in them all as well and i think the 78 one is they're like hell for leather and this this 81 match is there's a little bit more of a deliberate pace where they'll they'll pick up the pace at certain moments and they've probably realized at this point, we don't have to go full velocity for the entire half hour. You know, we can slow things down and work to the crowd a little bit more as we go. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is about like, it's about more about telling the story. The 78 match is considered like the, the high point of Brit rest, really like mm. the most mm. influential match. Uh, William Regal has pointed out many times it's the match that set the standard for what British wrestling should be about um, and changed the way we think about this. It became, it came before Dynamite and Tiger Mask. It came before Black Tiger and, and Tiger Mask. It was really the thing that kind of moved wrestling forward worldwide. And the that's, standards that's, were there. Sorry, just sorry, to jump, just to in, jump in. That's, in, crazy. that's crazy. When you when you think, uh, you know, how much people hold up, obviously, Tiger Mask and Dynamite, and as well, we're going to come on and talk about when Rocker was Black Tiger as well, like how that, they're kind of pointed at as like the innovative pushing the business forward. And it is really interesting to go back and look at like this match from 78. And yeah, Regal, obviously great, put out a great tribute to, to Rocco on his social media um, last week, talking about how, yeah, no, Rocco and Marty Jones were the guys who really, really innovated this style. And then, yeah, of course, guys like Dynamite then took it maybe another step further in his feud with Tiger Mask. But it's it's always interesting to see how certain things get slightly um, rewritten or forgotten about in wrestling history, you know, where, yeah, Mark Rocco and Marty Jones were so, such innovators. And while I think, 
British wrestling fans know that. I don't know if global wrestling fans necessarily realize like how influential these two guys were in pushing the business forward. I think that rests in two reasons. One, because Marty Jones never spent that much time abroad because he had a job at Manchester Market and he wanted to make sure he was making a living. You know, and he did he did all the things all the others did. He spent time in Mexico. He had drew thirty five thousand against Paraguay in a hair versus hair match mm. in Mexico mm. City. You know, he he went. He there is there is videotape somewhere. I've not yet seen it of him tagging with Hulk Hogan and Antonio Inoki in Japan. You know, he wow. did all wow. that. I did not, I did did not know that one. Yeah, Marty did all that stuff. He went to Madison Square Garden. Vince McMahon Senior was really high on him, and he was high on Mark Rocco as well. But they never got full-time jobs there eh, because they wanted to be back home. That was the thing. And I think that slightly, not so much with Rocco, but that slight less lack of ambition. But there's also the point, why go anywhere else when you're the king of the hill where you are and you're making a good living mm-hmm. and you're home in your own bed on a Saturday night? That's a different kind of security than say Dynamite or Davy Boy who were quite happy to fly to Canada or Japan or wherever they needed to go. They got the big paydays and they got the the kudos for what they did. Marty and Mark didn't so much. Well, Mark certainly got the big paydays and we'll talk about that later on. Yeah, but yeah. I think from an artistic point of view, they are only now getting their due partly because Marty's such a good trainer and has so much influence on the business from a training perspective and because of William Regal explaining things yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and those guys. But they don't get as much cachet because they didn't visibly travel as much as the others did, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, yeah, I, no I, I think I, that I is think a that... big part of it. It's just very interesting to revisit. I think Rocco gets a little bit more, you know, respect and admiration in that sense, because like you say, he does have that. People know he's the original Black Tiger, so which we'll obviously come on to. But yeah, it's, it's very interesting on Marty Jones because... Like, I'll, I'll be honest, like, I didn't know a huge amount about Marty Jones myself until I started doing these podcasts and you were telling me about, like, his his influence and how good he was. And I've watched, you know, these matches. We did, like, the Owen Jones, spe- uh, sorry, the uh, Owen Hart special. And then we did, you know, and now talking about his feud with Mark Rock and we're seeing, I've seen firsthand how good this guy actually was. But it's that availability, I think, as well. And the fact that, you know, WWE own most of the wrestling tapes in the world now so they kind of can rewrite the history to tell people you know who they think were the true influential people in the business um and it doesn't always tell the full story no for sure and this is like you know this is one of those examples if we move on should we move on to the next match because that's the really important one as mm-hmm. far as storytelling is mm-hmm. concerned so after the match we just watched in Burnley in 1980, um, this match. Uh, oh, hang on, I'm out of my, I'm out of sync here a little bit. Oh yeah, it was a bit late earlier than I thought. So back in Woking in September of 1978, Mark Grocco was mid heavyweight champion of the world. I've probably done the chronology slightly wrong on the, the list and didn't realise. Sorry, uh, Mark Rocco was mid-heavyweight champion of the United Kingdom and Marty Jones was the British light heavyweight champion and they still hated each other. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Marty Jones got pinned by Mark Rocco and Mark Rocco challenged Marty Jones 
for the light heavyweight championship. I have a pinfall victory on you. I deserve a title shot at you. And Marty's response was, I'll do you one better. I will drop to your weight to challenge for the mid-heavyweight championship, which is the only thing you can kind of do with weight divisions, especially when they're close together. You would never find Roman Reigns dropping 50 pounds to challenge for the cruiserweight championship, let's be honest. <laughs> but the best two workers in the industry were Mark Rocco and Marty Jones. Here's an interesting story to tell using the fact they're both champions, and you can have this championship versus championship feud and this big match on TV. And what a brilliant idea, and what a brilliant sense of booking and excitement it brought, and they had a cracking match as well. What's your thoughts on this one, Alex? Yeah, so in terms of... Um, so this will be the third match. It's trying to remember which match is which. Is uh, <laughs> We've watched a lot of Mark Rocco and Marty Jones today, but yeah... Um, again, like seeing, like you say, the evolution of their style was really interesting. Um, and yet it being a unification bow and the, it is something that you can't really, you can't really do now with the way wrestling is, you know, it's something that you see in boxing all the time, something you see in MMA and UFC all the time because the weight divisions are so defined, they're so close to each other. But wrestling has kind of moved away from that to the point where it's like you just have the big guys and the smaller guys, essentially. And that's kind of how that works. You know, you see, we talk about it with like New Japan now and how, you know, someone like Will Ospreay and the size of him, but he's working the junior heavyweight division, you know, but he's clearly heavyweight size and the lines are, are so much more blurred now, which in part is due to like a lot of wrestlers now work this kind of hard hitting style that these guys kind of started to pioneer that those weight classes don't necessarily matter as much now. Um, but yeah, I mean, throughout all these matches, like I say, I've, I've, I love watching like how, you know how innovative these guys were like and the subtle heel work from Rocco you know I've just I've really enjoyed seeing that side where you know how he develops that as the match continues with him essentially fighting dirtier and dirtier like he gets loads of warnings from the ref for underhanded tactics and kicking Marty when he's down um and I think it's this one where, you know, he starts working the match, you know, with a headlock, using the chancery all the time, but then realizes, well, I'll I'll attack his legs instead. That's not working. And then you're then Marty's forced to fight as the underdog. Again, it's it's really classic storytelling where, you know, Marty has to fight you know in one match he has to fight with basically one arm. In one uh, one match he has to fight with basically one leg because Rocco is constantly targeting body parts, which, again, sometimes you you worry is becoming like a lost art in certainly like mainstream US wrestling. Um, Japan's still fine, as we know, but <laughs> um, that kind of like old school storytelling of just just work a limb nonstop, you know, batter someone's arm until they have to submit, and it drives the crowd nuts. Um, and yeah, it's. Yeah, it, it's just really, really great storytelling. And yeah, the, the endings of these matches as well were so rapid. I found like watching you know, the 78 match and then these two matches from the early 80s where 
you know, they they just keep like attacking each other, going for pinfalls, going for submissions. Um, yeah, and like Jones, I think in this one, like he gets the backslide out of nowhere for the pin and the win, and you know, Rocco's fuming. It's yeah, it's all such creative ways of telling you know a similar story but in a slightly different way each time yeah for sure you know i mean they were obviously well versed with the fact that they were going to be married to each other for a very long time yeah and yeah <laughs> so they have to come up with different variations and different options and this match is this match is probably my personal favorite because of the way it was laid out and the story that it told and also the bit that they miss off the end when the recording of this is that Jones is standing tall he has two belts and then he just drops the mid-heavyweight championship and said there you go, I don't need this and walks away oh nice, oh, nice. <laughs> and it's like because Rocco has to go through all the qualifiers to get his title back and that's, you know, that's a brilliant piece of storytelling, they really don't like each other, you can tell <laughs> even though yeah. the match yeah. starts with them shaking hands like gentlemen there's going to be you know, and in their personal lives, they were mates. They had a lot of disagreements about direction and creativity. In fact, they had to call the police one night. It was that that much of a disagreement. Uh, they both oh, well. oh, well. once <laughs> <laughs> because they because they were the two best wrestlers in the country, and they were top of the card all the time. Um, the next match on this on our playlist is a match with um, Alan Dennison, Mark Rocco, and Alan Dennison, which is again. It's just a good example of what Rocco's about. Alan Dennison is a brilliant babyface. He was an incredibly strong man, and he used that as his gimmick, uh, even though he was really only a middleweight. Um, and and Rocco, it's the story of Rocco trying to negate this incredibly strong man. And it's a good story to tell. We're not going to concentrate on that, though, because we're trying to concentrate on the big stories. And the next story, the, the big match, the the next one, is the is Rollerball Rocco versus the Dynamite Kid. Now, Mark Rocco had wrestled Dynamite Kid in the mid-70s just as Dynamite was starting off, but he didn't really get to really have a go with him until Dynamite had spent some time in Japan and spent some time in Canada. And at this point, this particular match, Dynamite is announced as the World Junior Heavyweight Champion. I'm trying to look at time um, just to see what the date was. There's no dating on this particular one. But it looks like his, his early days of Calgary, I would say early 80s, late 70s, Max Ward resplendent in his purple uh, rugby top there. Uh, I do love seeing Max <laughs> Ward referee matches. He used to just gravelly voice, big bloke. Uh, Max Ward was awesome. Um, I think Dynamite had a version when he beat um, Nelson Royal or nearly beat Nelson Royal for the NWA Junior Heavyweight Championship. They kind of had a Calgary version of the WW, uh, the Junior Heavyweight Championship, which didn't get defended very often. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was Dynamite's version of it. Um, and he comes back on a weekend to see his family. And as always, when he gets work back, he gets a phone call from Max Crabtree and says, do you want to come and do a match? And it's with Mark Rocco. And if this is a blinder. This is a, a kind of what you'd expect to see in Tokyo, not what you'd expect to see in... Um, I'm guessing Croydon uh, <laughs> and, and it's, it's a different pace to the match with Marty Jones because Dynamite is clearly starting to bulk up and has been visiting the pharmacy you can tell that um, yes, but, also yes. he's, but he kind of like has to because he's wrestling people like 
bad news brown <laughs> or you know I, I, like I, I think at this particular point he was feuding with uh bad news brown uh, i can't remember bad news brown actual proper wrestling name from from camp stampede but bad news was was hard work he was a judo champion he was a proper shooter and he, and he meant you when he was having a go with you you know, wrestling Bad News Brown for a, a fortnight on a loop in Calgary was a walk in the park compared to wrestling Mark Rocco in some senses. But Mark Rocco's a whole different kettle of fish when it comes to speed and athleticism and moves. And they were well-matched and well-balanced. Both Lancastrians, both shooters, both knew what they were doing in the ring and both willing to take risks. So they were really the ideal pairing for a British wrestling ring. Uh, though they probably take more risks than most wrestlers do in this particular era. This is a corker. What's your thoughts on this, Alex? Um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned the uh, pharmacy thing because on commentary, the commentator actually points out about um, how Dynamite's bulked up and I was very like, hmm, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder how that's happened. Because um, I think I think it was Foley, Mick Foley, who said, like, Dynamite basically packed, like, all this muscle onto a frame that was definitely never supposed to hold any more than 10 stone. But, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the match, like, it's like it, it's what you say. It's what you would expect between two of the hardest-hitting guys of their generation, two of the most innovative guys of their generation. Um, yeah, it's... It's pretty intense. It's pretty physical. And I guess the disappointment is that it's it's quite short, this one. It kind of ends just as it's getting going. Um, it's only about 10 minutes, but it's a nice little match, what we do get of it. You know, famously, maybe the two hardest bumping wrestlers of their generation, um, which we get, the you know, a few moments of. And they're, you know, yeah, beating the crap out of each other at times. You know, again, Rocco, you know, Games advantages by, you know, using heel tactics quite a bit. One I really liked was him casually kneeing dynamite in the head as he's getting up, but making it look like it could be accidental to the ref, which, yeah, someone needs to bring that back. I think that's a really easy heel move that someone could get a lot of heat doing um, nowadays. Um, and yeah, I guess the big talking point after that is the the finish, which I think is quite interesting. It's obviously been done to protect both guys. Um, Dynamite gets cut open, I think, when he hits the headbutt, and then he gets the first pinfall. Uh, again, two out of three falls match. He gets the first pinfall, but the referee won't allow the match to continue because of the cut. Um, and I guess the thinking was Dynamite, like you say, has just popped in, <laughs> popped home for the weekend, essentially. Well, he was living in North America at this point, wasn't he? Which... You know, so he's popped back to Britain to visit his family um, and being called in. And I think the thinking is that, you know, let's make him look strong, get the first win. Um, but obviously his priorities at the time were New Japan and North America at that point. So they can keep the heat on Rocco, who's their top heel at the time, by him getting like this sort of fortunate win that he doesn't deserve. And then... Dynamite can come back for a rematch if he if he's able to. I guess at that time they probably didn't know where <laughs> if he could come back, how much he could come back, and and everything else. Um, but he does say on the mic after the match, you know, I'm not finished with you yet. And I think they did go on to have quite a a fairly extended feud after this. Yeah, they did, but it wasn't for joint promotions. It was for All Star, which we will talk about shortly because that's mm -hmm. perhaps. 
the most innovative thing that Mark Rocco did. But we've still got some matches and joint promotions to talk our way through. We've got another match with Marty Jones because they were married together for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and this was, as the, the guy who posted it said, on this particular day, it was Five Nations Rugby and it was the old firm Derby, not the old firm Derby. It was also the Manchester Derby. City played United the same day and Mark wow, Rocco wow. versus Marty Jones. It's a big, it's a big for day for Manchester. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, to be honest, I think Rocco versus Jones is, a, is perhaps a more important Manchester derby. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> for I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree. even disagree. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, so Rocco versus Jones again. But this one kind of is, it's, they've established themselves now. So it, it's really um, how they... Uh, how they kind of tell the story is again a bit different. They're a little bit older, as you can tell by their haircuts. Mark is <laughs> kind of erring towards the mullet, and Marty's got to his signature short back and sides. And it's much more about violence this time. It's it's the wrestling's gone out the window. It's how can we hurt each other in the most efficient manner? So is this the eighty-eight match? No, this is the eighty-five match. I think it's eighty-five. Okay. Okay. There's, there's, <laughs> we we've watched we've quite, watched a, few quite a few of these. <laughs> yes, there's yeah, so many yeah. to choose from. Yeah. So there's there's the eighty five one, then there's there's the eighty eight one to come. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. This this one is this one is I think after those the world when Marty was world mid heavyweight champion. So it may be a little bit earlier, eighty three, and Rocco has got to his signature red and blue red and blue gear. So yeah. Yeah, it's. <laughs> by the way, it's interesting to um, see Mark Rocco's look because he, it's, it's yeah, that kind of mustache, shaggy hair, the the striped singlet. It's yeah, it's quite interesting to look back on, and be like, this guy was like the most badass heel in Britain at the time, but he doesn't always look like it. He looks so nineteen um, eighties, doesn't he? But yeah, again, like you say, like. It's, it was interesting, and we'll we'll come on to the 88 thing, which kind of, so the 88 match, which kind of advances this even further. But it's really interesting to watch, you know, um, Rocco and Jones's feud over the course of essentially a decade. Because you could watch these four or five matches in a row, and you're getting a story of how British wrestling was evolving at the same time as their styles were evolving, because, you know, you see the 78 match is very, as you say, it's them going so fast to kind of, you know, they're, they're going full, full pelt basically because they're trying to make a name for themselves by, you know, the later matches They're you know, they're the established top guys. They don't need to do as much. They can slow down, tell the story a bit more, but also in terms of how the referee is responding and how like, in the earlier matches you watch, it's very like warnings, you know, they, they can't get away with anything. And then as the feud develops, I think the ref starts to let more stuff go because the crowd are into that. They like it when Marty, you know, fights back because Rocco's been cheating for ages. Like he's going to, you know, lose his temper and kick him back in the head while he's down. You know, he's, he wants to get a bit of revenge. He, he's getting, you know, Rocco's winding him up. So, yeah, I like that you could see how 
the British wrestling style kind of developed in that way as well as these matches went on where the rules are still important, but maybe we can let a little bit more go for the sake of the story and for the sake of Marty Jones getting one up on Mark Rocco. And yeah, if particularly in a match where, because I didn't know the context of that, that it was the same day as the Manchester Derby, like the fact that it's yeah two Mancunians on that day, like, yeah, you've got, you've got to let more go. You've got to let more go. You've got to get, let Marty Jones get away with a bit more. It's also interesting that Rocco is in United Red and Jones is in City Blue. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which, you know, of course City are the baby faces in Manchester and of course United are the heels. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whether whether that's still the case now is, is a different discussion, but uh, I'll keep that one to myself. For those of you who don't know, you can actually see Old Trafford from the steps of MEN Arena, but they're still not popular there. Anywho, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the next match um, on my particular list was Rollerball Rocco versus Gentleman Chris Adams, or as he was known then, Judo Chris Adams. Now, we're not going to talk about this one because Alex hasn't seen this one, but this one I do strongly recommend because Chris Adams could go. Chris Adams was a sorely underrated British junior heavyweight, and again, for the same reason that he did most of his famous wrestling in Dallas, not in New York, not in Tokyo, though he did spend some time in New Japan. He was an absolutely brilliant babyface, just ideal for Mark Rocco, willing to bump for Mark Rocco, willing to go with him, tough as nails as well. And again, Chris Adams was part of that golden generation of junior heavyweights. He went on to make a lot of money, specifically in Dallas, and of course trained one stone cold Steve Austin. Yeah, so, not, yeah, not a bad not, claim, not a to, bad fame claim to fame that one. No, yeah, as as Rocco called him, one of them headbangers from Leamington Spa. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's how Banger Walsh became Banger Walsh because Rocco called all of the people wrestlers from Leamington Spa headbangers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what, the next match we're actually going to talk about is Tiger Mask versus Black Tiger, which is uh, from nineteen eighty. Three, I think, or is it? Oh, New Japan. It's 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 in Spanish. I can't tell. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, there's some Spanish lovely Spanish commentary, commentary over the top of this one. Yes, I believe <laughs> it is also the debut of Black Tiger. Am I correct? I think it is. Um, which he got paid ten thousand English pounds for. For what? For, for what? For that match. one match. For that one match. Oh, yeah. not a, not a bad payday if you can get it. That is it. No, basically what happens it was um, Rocco had spent some time in the late 70s wrestling for IWE, International Wrestling Enterprises, which we have talked a lot about on Beginner's Guide to Japan. If you want to go back to the early episodes, we took apart a few cards. I think it was me and you, or it might be me and Marcus. We took, a, we took apart a few cards from, from them. And then Carl Gotch got wind of Mark Rocco after Satoru Sayama had come to the UK and wrestled as Sammy Lee. Um, and which, which is, of course, Sammy Lee, because he's Japanese, so he has to be Sammy Lee. Um, <laughs> but he wrestled uh, Mark Rocco a couple of times in the UK, absolutely raved about him to Carl Gotch. Carl Gotch and Antonio Inoki had this idea because they had the rights for the Tiger Mask comic book. So they got the rights to Black Tiger, and they wanted a Black Tiger to wrestle Tiger Mask. Um, and they contacted Mark Rocco and they discussed a few things. They came up with an idea for his like his attire and his mask. And Rocco then was booked to come and appear at Rayo Sumo Hall to wrestle 
Tiger Mask, which is where this match is from. And now we're looking at the rafters, it's definitely that one. Um, and he goes to Japan, he flies to Japan, and he lands in Tokyo, and, and the, the captain comes back and says, we've got a message from the ground, would you mind putting your mask on before you get off the plane? And <laughs> Rocco puts his mask on, and he, he goes down the steps, and the entire Japanese wrestling press corps is there taking pictures of him. So he waves to them as he goes down the steps, and a limousine pulls up to the steps. He gets nice, in the back nice. of the limousine. He is driven to the terminal where they check his passport at the terminal. No bags. They are all dealt with. And then he is taken to the Grand Hotel opposite Raibuku Sumo Hall. And he's put up in Five Star Hotel to, uh, to, to, to start his preparation for the big match with Sayama. Sorry, Tiger Mask. And $10,000 for Raigoku Sumo Hall for the Junior Heavyweight Championship of the WWF, as it was at the time. And they put in an absolute blinder. And they certainly, certainly earned his £10,000. What's your thoughts on this match? And what's your thoughts on the Black Tiger gimmick to start with, Alex? Um, yeah, Rocco as Black Tiger. Like, I don't think I realised how long he actually portrayed that persona from. Like, 1982 to 1990. Um, obviously, like you say, brought in specifically to feud against the original Tiger Mask, Satoru Sayama. Um, and I think... The feud with Dynamite, Tiger Mask and Dynamite, is the one that's always held up. But this wasn't far behind, like the quality of matches they were having. You know, you can see why um, Rocco was such a good fit, I think, in in that division as the character. Obviously, you know, spoken a bunch of times about that kind of heelish element he would bring to his matches as Rocco. So he could then bring that to the matches as Black Tiger. Um And yeah, just like Dynamite was such a good fit in this um, junior heavyweight division in New Japan, Rocco was as well because of this style that was developing and they were innovating, you know, so hard hitting, so fast paced. And yeah, taking what we've seen watching these matches from the British scene and pushing them in a slightly different way for the Japanese audience. Um, And yeah, he he just felt like the perfect <laughs> the perfect guy to be Tiger Mask's arch nemesis because he had all the things you needed for that to work. Um, and yeah, again, it's really a really innovative match. So this is from like 1982. Again, like that's absolutely like so ahead of its time. Like, you know, you're looking at like the finish is like, a, there's a tombstone on the outside. Tiger Mask is diving off the top finish him with a mat like a mate a big german suplex in the ring you know these were things you weren't really seeing in mainstream u.s wrestling at the time um and yeah i believe this led to like rocco getting that little run in the wwf as well as black tiger i think he held the junior heavyweight title for like 20 days or something like that which is a cool little bit of history um and yeah i think you actually wrote this in your your tribute to Rocco. Um, it's telling that the only person they could, the only person deemed good enough to replace Mark Rocco's Black Tiger was Eddie Guerrero. I think that says says quite a lot about how revered he was in this role. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Rocco in in Japan is just he's just perfect. And I'm I'm just been thinking about it. Look at what they did with that junior heavyweight division to build Tiger Mask as the linchpin of that division. Mm-hmm. You know, he wrestles Bret Hart, who's very 
straight up and down Calgary style wrestler, very Canadian style heel at the time, Dynamite Kid, this hybrid of Wigan toughness and submissions along with uh, gymnastics and and again that that stampede approach, and then somebody completely different in many senses. I mean, Mark Rocco obviously comes from Lancashire and he's very bump heavy like Dynamite, but his approach is different to what Dynamite does. You know, mm-hmm. so they're trying to build Tiger Mask as this, you know, guy who can beat anybody. And Black Tiger is like, you're right, is his arch nemesis. Yeah, Mark Rocco does win the WWF Junior Heavyweight Championship when both Sayama and Dynamite leave the company. Um, he wins the tournament for the vacant title, but drops it 20 days later, as you said. And it does start the, the it does represent New Japan Pro Wrestling in the WWF. You know, Dynamite and uh, Tiger Mask had wrestled at Madison Square Garden, I think it was in 83, in the match that Vince McMahon described as the best wrestling match he ever saw mm-hmm. at the time. And obviously, when they leave and the Cobra becomes um, the key draw for the junior heavyweights in New Japan, and Rocco is still the number one nemesis, they obviously go to represent New Japan. Rocco had wrestled for Vince McMahon Sr in Madison Square Garden, but the Cobra, a blessed black tiger, which there's a short WWE uh, version of, which you can watch on our playlist, and it gives you the highlights. Really weird to listen to uh, Gorilla Monsoon commentating on Mark Rocco. Yeah, Yeah, the the brief highlights we see of that match yeah it, it is really interesting on, <laughs> on the gorilla monsoon commentary thing and again it's just really interesting to see that style in the wwf at that time because i don't think people still associate that style with like the 80s wrestling in wwf um you know when you're talking about like how dynamite and tiger mask was the best match that Vince McMahon said he'd ever seen it you know up to that point I think people would be pretty surprised by that because this that isn't the type of wrestling that he appears to naturally gravitate towards so yeah it's it's really interesting to see it's a shame it's only like a few minutes the highlights I'd be really interested to see some more extended stuff um of Black Tiger in WWF I don't think there's stuff on the WWE network but um hopefully hopefully they can put a bit more on now um given with mark rocco's passing it'd be a good time to try and get more of that footage on the network if they have it they were representing new japan at the time i'm sure new japan would be fine with them showing it though um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether Vince McMahon will be so keen now, now to, to promote <laughs> New Japan, I'm not sure. Um, but I mean, yeah, I well, I mean, you don't mention it, do you? <laughs> they didn't yeah, mention yeah. the Crush Girls <laughs> from AJW, for instance. But yeah, I think um, it. I think it's. I think it's kind of like there's not many matches, but there's enough there. And you know, the Cobra versus Black Tiger. It, it was Cobra's a bigger wrestler, so it's going to have a different feel. Cobra wasn't good as good as, as Tiger Mask or Dynamite was. I think he'd be the first to admit that. He was still a very mm. solid professional wrestler and had that lucha crossover style with the Japanese style that was kind of like the signature of the junior heavyweight division at the time. And yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see if there's there's not many, but the, the matches that are there, it would be interesting to see. Now, around about this time, Mark Rocco had a big decision to make because back in the UK, he was getting pressure from... Max Crabtree, he was the promoter of joint promotions, about going to Japan. He didn't like him going to Japan because it screwed up with his schedule. 
when he was available in the UK. And he was kind of getting a bit sick of, well, let's be honest, Big Daddy being the big draw in the UK and therefore mm-hmm. filling a lot of houses that he felt that he had filled for him because Mark was still the second or third match on in joint promotions. And he was starting to feel a little underappreciated after a decade of paying his dues and finally being the best wrestler on the card. And one day there was a barbecue one Sunday afternoon and Oreg Williams and Brian Dixon came to the barbecue and that was Oreg Williams of the British Wrestling Federation in Wales and Brian Dixon of All Star Promotions out of uh, Liverpool. And they talked wrestling until it went dark. And Mark had seen what a couple of other wrestlers, Wayne Bridges, I believe was one, and John Quinn, they'd both gone to All Star and been very well looked after. And All Star had no TV deal. But he was promised more creative freedom. He was promised as much money as he was earning in uh, joint promotions. And you also have to point out the fact that he was making a big deal here. He couldn't go back. Once he jumped, that was it. That was his job. And he made that decision and made it stick. And did an awful lot of good for joint promotions. He was well known uh, within the joint promotion circle, especially when it comes to halls and trying to get bigger venues for All-Star. In fact, to the point where Joint Promotions told the venues that Mark Rocco had retired because <laughs> he wasn't on TV anymore. So how would they know? Wow. Um, <laughs> so he goes to All-Star, and in 1985, All-Star premieres satellite wrestling on Screen Sport uh, on the old Astra satellite, and they have a new TV show, which is very, very different to ITV Fair the matches, there's a couple of matches on this list. There's one with Irish Pat Barrett, but the one we would suggest you look at, the one we're going to talk about, is the one with Eddie Hamill, Kung Fu. Uh, Eddie Hamill was trained out of uh, Dave Finley II. I think trained by Dave Finley II. Was a tough Belfast brawler, much like Dave Finley III. Um, and this was a brilliant, incredibly violent professional wrestling match. What's your thoughts yeah, on this one? Yeah. <laughs> well, I love that... Um... Like you say, he he's billed as like a kung fu master, and he's not really, is he? It's very um, yeah, it's very wrestling. Like just just put him in, you know, a kung fu gi, and um, yeah, just just say he's a kung fu master. Um, and what he actually does is his first two moves are working over Rocco's testicles. Appears to be his his strategy because he keeps um, like. I think he he like kicks him with one and then throws him like ball first into the turnbuckles with his second move. But yeah, it's it's very different this this match when we're talking about the evolution of British wrestling. This is obviously now in a completely different promotion. It's not it's not drawing on the world of sports style quite so much. The rules are still there, but it's definitely yeah, it's a lot more hard hitting. There's a little bit more of the kind of other elements starting to filter in. Um, first of all, lovely that we get to hear Rocco walking out to TNT in this one by ACDC, which he used as his entrance theme it later on in his career. It's glad that made it into the video. And then, yeah, this was basically like unlike anything else in the other matches we've watched because there's a lot of brawling around the ring. Rocco isn't even subtly cheating in this one. He's blatantly cheating. <laughs> At one point, he, like, grabs a camera cable and, like, chokes him out. You know, it's 
has it wrapped around his eyes. The the commentary team, like I'd urge people to watch this just for the commentating because there are some great, very, very British humour quips. I think um, when he's attacking him with the cable, he says like that's the first time you'll see a tonsillectomy on live on on TV. Um, yeah, and yeah, like. Like I say, it's, you're seeing this evolution of British wrestling where, yeah, the, there's Rocco's cheating his blame, but also he's able to crack out a bit more of his high-flying stuff here as well because it's not as... You're not really supposed to do that under World of Sport rules. You know, you kind of get warnings for that stuff, but here he can go for, like, his top rope elbow drop and show that side of stuff that he's been doing in Japan as Black Tiger. So... Yeah, I, I think it's it's a really interesting match because it's so different to anything else that, that we're watching because, yeah, it is so... The brawling around the ring is, is so blatant in this one. And then, of course, it, it, and then, of course, on, it, it carries um, on as they go backstage as well. <laughs> yeah, they were trying to do really something this, different to this. I was thinking about this commentary by Wheel Tappers and Shunters. Um, there you go. There you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know, Screen Sport was a satellite wrestling TV channel from the 1980s that merged with Eurosport, I think about 95 or 96. But they did, they had plenty of TV time to film and were quite willing to put all sorts of interesting things. So, you know, Mark Rocco trying to murder Eddie Hamill. Yeah, we'll have that. Fine. No <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, Eddie Hamill was a tough pro. He was really, really good. Originally, he was the masked Kung Fu and then lost his mask, um, which tended to hurt his draw a little bit because the same reasons he doesn't look very oriental or, you know, Kung Fu like. But also when he's wrestling other people, other than Mark Rocco, he gets a bit more forward motion. Uh, but this was, <laughs> this was a much more like realistic presentation of professional wrestling and it's trying to develop it in the same way. Referee Frank Casey would go on to greater fame as the British Bushwhacker. Um, wow. wow. <laughs> okay. okay. And would also spend a large part of his career driving wrestlers to Germany for the European tournaments, Rotto Vans. Much to the chagrin of the wrestlers who used to get like rental cars and hotels, but Frank could do it cheaper. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Eddie Hamill versus Mark Rocco is a really interesting match. We strongly suggest you watch it. Also, whilst Mark Rocco is involved with joint promotions, oh, sorry, with all star promotions. He obviously knows a lot of the TV um, executives at ITV and starts negotiations with them to get All-Star in the rotation for professional wrestling on World of Sport or as ITV wrestling as it was because World of Sport had finished by then. Um, and he moves, helps move professional wrestling onto ITV with all-star and one of the key feuds is a young man called kiechi yamada or is known as british rings flying fuji yamada more widely known as jushin thunder liger so the match that we got next on our playlist is jushin thunder liger or fuji yamada defending his world heavy middleweight championship against rollerball mark rocco uh in an absolutely incredible professional wrestling match uh from 1987 I think it was actually taped in 1986. Rocco was absolutely on point in this particular match. Yamada, you forget how good he was, and how fast he was when he was younger. 
as he got mm. older he obviously slowed down because he retired at like 52 <laughs> but he's his just his ability as a professional wrestler in the mid 80s was outstanding what's your thoughts on this match alex because it is really something quite special yeah rocco was was obviously involved in in yamada's a lot of his early training they had this big feud in the uk and then they took that feud to japan um and yeah it like you say the talk about the yamada match first like it is it's so exciting like it's so hard hitting and yeah it's really interesting to see yamada before he's done the mask and become jushin liger you know um and then obviously they they went on to have a number of matches after that as black tiger and jushin liger it's another one of those yeah it's really interesting to see the feud, you know, develop through all these different stages. And you're right, like Yamada, when when he was younger, like the stuff he was pulling off, like I think people who've maybe watched like Liger stuff in the past 20 years won't maybe even realise how innovative he actually was. You know, he obviously like invented the shooting star press, for instance, Um it's yeah, it, it's crazy the stuff that he was he was pulling off in this match, and then I I assume we're going to come on and talk about the the match of him as Jushin Liger as well. Yes, yes, we will. I mean, yeah, I mean, Yamada versus Rocco was a kind of like the best match I'd ever seen at this point in 1986. You know, this was this was just phenomenal. This this the speed that they're going at, the things they're trying to do it felt completely different. It was the first time I'd noticed All-Star Wrestling doing something completely different to what joint promotions have been doing because the pace is just so breakneck. And the first four comes with a German suplex, a bridging German suplex, which I'd only seen Owen Hart do that before. He's the only person I'd ever seen it do before. <laughs> and that was two years earlier. You know, yeah, so we, we yeah, spoke, about, spoke that about that on the Owen on Hart, the Hart special, special as well. <laughs> as well. <laughs> like your brain is exploding watching Owen Hart, but like watching you Fuji Yamada do it with the Christmas and the bang, and it's just so, so well done. You know, everything is so crisp about this match. It's not the Jones story, which is scrappy and intentionally scrappy because they're competitive. This is about crisp professionalism. You know, Yamada is here. He's here to win championships. And that's what he's been sent to do. And Rocco's here to make sure he doesn't take it home with him. And it's, it's, it's less the heel and face. Though Yamada is massively popular and Rocco is booed, there's less... There's more ambiguity about what's happening in the ring, I think. Yeah, hundred percent. Like it's it's so interesting, like I said, to go back and watch matches from this era when you're looking at yeah, guys like Rocco, guys like Tiger Mask, guys like Jushin Liger or Yamada, who was who was going to become Jushin Liger. Because I think, you know, this is like the eighties and I think a lot of mainstream wrestling fans still think rest or still picture wrestling in the 80s and 90s as being like that muscled up slow paced style of the WWF or the old school technical side, if you like, that style of the NWA and WCW at the time. And they're not necessarily as aware, like how innovative some of the stuff that was happening in the 80s around the UK and Japan actually was um and the stuff that yeah like to watch this from the mid 80s and the pace they're going at the the moves they're cracking out is is 
yeah, absolutely mind-blowing. I think if, as we spoke about with the 78 match between Marty Jones and Mark Rocco, like, you show a match like this to, like, fans now, and I think a lot of people would be quite shocked at the, the level of output that was actually happening in the mid-80s, sort of outside of the mainstream North American promotions, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm just watching this, and I've seen a small package, and the Bret Hart hammerlock escape where he like runs people outside of the ring and mm-hmm. now like Rocco's just taking a massive bump into the corner post. It's so innovative and it's so it's so well structured and so crisp. He's been doing this for such a long time. You see everything together that that, that all of the feuds he's he's learned from and how to make a feud for a championship work. He's a championship level main event player. That's what you know that's what you can say about him now. And that's that's what makes this match so good. Because Yamada is just feeding off of all that skill level. You know, Yamada's three years in the business and he's phenomenal. He's clearly a great, great talent. But, you know, Rocco just brings out everything in him and it makes the perfect matchup. Shall we move on then to our final chapter in the story of Marty Jones and Mark Rocco? They would have many singles matches after this and even tag together as Rocco turned face in the late 80s. But the final match on television was a, I believe, let me have a look, I'll just make sure. Um, it, John Lister, a famous F- FSM writer, he put, he put all of these uh, Rocco versus Jones matches together uh, and they put on there. It's an all-star promotion and it's Mark Rocco versus Marty Jones. Marty Jones was a joint performer, but by this point you could wrestle for either company. It wasn't quite as uh, prescribed as it had been in the past. Jones versus Rocco, the eternal story comes to its final chapter and they do not disappoint. They're 10 years <laughs> older, they're a little bit slower, but everything hits so much harder and the story is absolutely perfectly told. As You don't see it on this particular version of it, but Rocco, sorry, Jones finishes it uh, with the promo, if I don't split you here, I'll split you in the bloody car park. And that's <laughs> the entire 10 years for me in this particularly wonderful professional wrestling match which ends in a double disqualification. And usually, if you watch a match that ends in a double disqualification, you don't think it's that good. But this one was actually that good. What's your thoughts on this one, Alex? Yeah, it's it's a great match. Like, it's, it's really interesting, because, yeah, like you say, we've watched now... We watched one started with a match in 78, and then this last match is in 88, so over the course of an entire decade. And we've had like a nice spread of their matches here across that entire time, which shows the longevity of the feud. Um, and I think this was maybe you know a few years after their feud had kind of cooled off, and this was them very much them bringing it back for, for the last hurrah. Um, and yeah, you, you mentioned like. Um, Marty Jones's work on the mic there. Also, Mark Rocco's pre-match promo here is amazing too, where he tells basically Marty's fans that he's gonna not only destroy, not only destroy Marty Jones, he's gonna put the little pieces that are left of Marty in envelopes and send them to his fans, which was yeah very enjoyable. Um, and yeah, considering this is a whole ten years after that seventy-eight match, you know they're a decade older, as you say. Yes, they have slowed down a bit, but not much. Like, the pace in the match is still incredible. Like, the first round is relentless. The, the start of the second round is great, too. Obviously, Rocco's trying every trick in the book. He 
throws water in Marty, uh, Marty's face at the start of the round. He takes off the turnbuckle pad, but then Marty starts battering him with it instead, which kind of comes back to what I was saying earlier about how they were relaxing the rules a little bit more. And, you know, Marty is allowed to get away with that because Rocco has basically been such an ass to him for 10 years that it doesn't matter so much. The ref's going to be like, oh, we'll let that one go. We'll let you batter him with the turnbuckle pad. Um, and yeah, maybe it's a case where there's a little bit more of the US influence stuff starting to filter into British wrestling, particularly as the TV stuff became more important. Um, and yeah, you know, the fans do have more of an element. They want to see the heel get their comeuppance, basically. And yeah, the the finish, really interesting, like the way they do it as well, because both men are disqualified, but they first announce it on the mic as Marty is disqualified, which is a bold move because there could have been like a riot in the building before they actually like reveal that also Rocco has been disqualified and then they sort of fight to the back. And yeah, if, if this was their last ever match on TV, first of all, you can understand why they... <sighs> You kind of like, did they need a definitive ending? I don't know. I I kind of like the idea that it was like they're just going to keep fighting forever, whether it's in the ring, whether it's in the car park. Like you say, the fact that they just brawl back um, to the dressing room is almost fitting of how the, the rivalry had developed over the course of a decade from being you know, maybe more respectful at the start to how it developed into really quite a a heated rivalry it was kind of a nice way to finish it off in that sense literally fight forever yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) and i mean this is this is the perfect end to their tv story it isn't the last match on tv for mark rocco we've got a couple more to talk about chip cullen who would end up beating mark rocco for the world heavy middleweight championship in the early 1990s and one of my personal favorites is his match with johnny saint which really showed a different side to Rocco because he had to wrestle in a technical manner. And this was really much so much fun to watch. I mean, Johnny Saint was Johnny Saint never really got to stretch his legs when it came to violence because he was always wrestling baby faces because that's what junior, you know, white heavyweight wrestling was about was baby face versus baby face and, you know, nice smooth matches. And he wrestled Flash Gordon. It was a bit of a heel, but not like a proper heel. So watching him wrestle Rocco, and having a bit more, you know, in-depth wrestling style and trying to change things up a bit is really interesting. And also watching Johnny Saint go toe-to-toe with perhaps the best technical wrestler in the world at the time. This is something really different, and I really enjoyed it. I Johnny Saint didn't always get the opponents he needed. Rocco was probably at the limit of the weight class he could wrestle believably and have a good match with. And mm-hmm. Rocco's just amazing. So, you know... It, it, it's you know Rocco did say um, I've, I've read interviews with him where he did say he loved wrestling George Kidd in Dundee. It was the best matches and the best payoffs he had, the best crowds he had, the best promoter to work for. And Johnny Johnny Saint was uh, a protege of George Kidd, so I'm sure they have enjoyed wrestling one another. Um, and it was a it was a pretty innovative match for its time as well. What's your thoughts on this one, Alex? Yeah, hundred yeah, I'd kind of echo what you said there where it's interesting to watch Johnny saying you know against a proper heel in this way to the point where you know first of all like it's two absolute British legends you know going at it in kind of 
the technical map based clinic you'd probably expect you know all the lovely counters from Johnny Saint are there you're seeing the athleticism of Rocco and his hard bumping and everything else you know it's going to be good in that sense I think the extra element like you say is Johnny Saint was you know known as like the fluid technical never (laughs) sort of never lose his temper you know all that kind of stuff he's that kind of worker very clean cut and technical and then this match was interesting because like Johnny Singh gets a public warning of all things because Rocco winds him up so much. It adds that extra element to it where, you know, dastardly Mark Rocco has driven Johnny Singh to even, you know, end up getting a warning through losing his temper, you know, because as we know, these damn baby faces never learn. So when, when a heel offers their hand, they need to stop shaking those hands because it's never going to end well. Um, it's yeah, it's it's really interesting technical match with that that extra edge of Mark Rocco's heel work, which I think makes it yeah, it takes it to another level. It's it's really interesting to see Johnny Saint coming up against that kind of wrestler. And as you say, it's in terms of the weight classes, he was kind of limited sometimes in that sense. So it was nice that this match did get to happen, even though maybe it was just on the borderline of of what was you know realistic at the time you know now we we don't even think of wrestling necessarily in those terms where you look at how say new japan has evolved to the point that it's getting to the point now where anyone from any weight class can wrestle each other it's not an issue but obviously that was it was quite different back in the day so yeah it's it's very interesting to go back and see that or anyone can wrestle anyone when we're desperate for a main event match. <laughs> More than that. More yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> it would actually be one of the last matches Mark Rocco would have as a heel in the United Kingdom. Not long after this, he tags with Kendo Nagasaki to face the Golden Boys, Steve Regal and Robbie Brookside. Now, you know, the two lead trainers of the WWF Community Performance Center. And what happens was, is Robbie Brookside ends up demasking Kendo Nagasaki and stuffing the mask in Mark Rocco's hand, and Nagasaki never forgive Rocco, Rocco turns face, and went on a massive feud with Kendo Nagasaki all around the houses, as a baby face, believe it or not. It was the mm-hmm. dream of Brian Dixon, because Mark <coughs> Rocco said, Brian, what match would you love to put on that you can't? And he said, you versus Kendo Nagasaki. But that would make money. And he said, but how? We're both heels. He said, well, one of you's going to have to turn baby face, aren't they? And Mark was like, ooh. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) And because Rocco had never been truly a heel, he'd always had respect from the fans, even the ones who didn't like him, because he was that good at his job. It worked. It wouldn't have worked with Nagasaki being the babyface, because he's too big and he was too much of a heel. But with Rocco turning babyface, it opened up a whole new set of opportunities. And Rocco's last match in the United Kingdom would be with Dave Fit Finlay. Now, that would have been something to see. But sadly, wrestling was no longer on TV by then, and there was no TV taping for it. Rocco retired not long after that match, thanks to a heart problem, which we'll talk about before we talk about the last match we have, which is from around about 1990, with Jushin Thunder Liger wrestling Black Tiger in Tokyo. What's your thoughts on this one, Alex? Because this one is a little bit different to Flying Fujimada versus Mark Rocco. Um, But yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, we spoke about um, his feud with Yamada, how Rocco had this big hand in helping train develop Liger. Um, they then, 
yeah, took the feud to Japan and had, yeah, this was Black Tiger, Jushin Liger, and yeah, it's very good. Unsurprisingly, it's, you know, a bit more technical work in the ring, but the fast pace is still there. You've got a lot of work on the outside as well, which was starting to, you know, come into that junior heavyweight style, you know, on the back of what, you know, Black Tiger, Tiger Mask, Dynamite, all those guys had done in the mid 80s. Um, you know, you had Rocco like missing a punch and hitting the ring post instead, like Liger faking a dive, hitting another dive to the outside straight after. Um, yeah, just just really good. You know, Black Tiger tries to steal the win at the end with a low blow and a roll up, but Liger manages to kick out and hit the Liger bomb for the win. Um, and again, like, just very ahead of its time and this would have been i guess right at the end of rocco's run as black tiger so it's really interesting to yeah see he essentially in his last his last run as black tiger made sure that he put over jushin liger as as the next guy which is yeah really cool it's it's again like not to keep repeating this but it is really interesting like when you think about the times these matches were happening because if this was new year's eve 1989 like three months later it would have been hogan and warrior at wrestlemania which kind of tells you like the difference between what was going on in the mainstream wrestling compared to what was going on in yeah in japan and in britain and everything else and how you know wrestling was evolving outside of the mainstream yeah, I mean, really, when you think about it, as far as eras are concerned, Mark Rocco started in the era of Les Kellett and finished in the Tokyo Dome era. You know, he literally took wrestling from the town halls in Croydon and Bolton and, you know, Bellevue, Manchester, all these great classic wrestling British halls and ended up at the Tokyo Dome. Mm-hmm. That's a career. That's an incredibly impressive career. Uh, in the end, Mark Rocco had to retire because of a heart condition. Basically, he had always trained himself to exhaustion because that's the way you did back in the 1960s. That was considered the right thing to do. And he trained himself to exhaustion all the way through his life, making his heart bigger and bigger and bigger until that massive pump in his chest would pump no more. He actually had a pacemaker fitted before he was in his 50s and it slowed him down. But he was already a made man. He had bought houses in the Tenerife and settled down to to raise his family. His son who ended up being a boxer. Um, and he only really came back to the ring once, and that was for British TNA British Boot Camp. He was friends with all sorts of people, including Hulk Hogan. Uh, they used to spend a lot of time together in Japan because they were English speakers. And it, it, he had such that's a very wild, wild, wild as a, as a, as a pairing. <laughs> just, yeah. just, just picturing, picturing that, in that in the dressing room. <laughs> actually, Hulk Hogan did actually pay his tribute to on his Twitter account. Of all the Twitter accounts you expected to pay tribute to Mark Rocco, Hulk Hogan wasn't one of them, but he did. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, he was well liked within the dressing room. And when he got a chance to take over some of the booking work for All Star, he ensured that it wasn't the old formulaic boring match, pretty good match, technical match, main event. He ensured everyone got their shout and he changed the business, much like AEW have done in the last two or three years. He did that back in the 1980s to ensure everybody, and especially the young stars who were coming through, had their opportunities and gave chances to people who needed it, people like Jushin Liger. So, Mark Rocco, any final thoughts on him, Alex? 
yeah, just, yeah, just it's been it's really, been really enjoyable, enjoyable going back, going back and, and watching these matches. These matches. Like, I say, like I say, it's my, my you know, to, you know to, to, my to my shame. shame I, I, I hadn't actually, actually seen s- a lot of his stuff. Like I just knew I'd seen highlights of him, how innovative he was. And it's been really interesting to go and watch these matches and see like what he was doing with Marty Jones in 1978, what he was doing in the mid eighties with, you know, Tiger mask with Liger and how, yeah, how he did, you know, with this group of British and Irish wrestlers, I guess really help shape the modern style we see now. Like I said, the top, you see that from the guys who are paying tribute to him, you know, across the board like wrestlers who've been who've been influenced by him and whether that's you know the hard bumping style the you know bringing in different elements of different types of wrestling and creating this hybrid style or even like how great his heel work was and how he was so great at turning a crowd against him like yeah he's he's just one of the all-time greats and yeah I do hope some of you know a little bit more of his stuff from when he did wrestle as black tiger um in the wwf i hope that does make it onto the wwe network and people can see a bit of that um because yeah i know they they've paid tribute to him on their website as how innovative he was and yeah just what a what an incredible career as you said like we've covered here like what 15 years and all these different types of matches he was having the fact that he's worked classics in you know the uk classics in the us classics in japan like he he did it all basically yes he did and we'd like to thank mark rocco for everything he did for professional wrestling in the united kingdom and around the world the world is a much sadder place without you here, and we would like everyone to enjoy as many Rocco matches and as many Rocco moments as you can. Thank you for listening to the Troopany Show today. The Beginner's Guide to Japan and our Brit Rest series kind of come together for this one in our tribute to Mark Rollerball Rocco. Mr. Alex Watt, where can we find you on social media these days, sir? Uh, same uh, place as always. On Twitter. At Alex Watt one eight seven. Um, got my football podcast as well. Give a shout out since we mentioned the Manchester derby briefly. Um, yeah, I'm at Did It Cross on Twitter. Our podcast is Did It Cross the Line, which myself and my good wife do, covering football every week. If you're into that sort of thing or soccer for our US listeners. Um, but yeah, cheers. Cheers for having me today. Like I say, it's been it's been really interesting to look back at yeah, a guy I'd heard so much about, but maybe hadn't watched enough as much of his stuff as I should have done. And yeah, he's it's just amazing to watch how innovative and influential Mark Rocco actually was on the wrestling we watched today. Okay. Thank you for that. Thank you for listening to us as well. My name is James Troopany. You can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter. You can find the show Troopany Show on Twitter and on Facebook, The Troopany Show, as well as the Patreon, or on Patreon, not the Patreon. On Patreon, you can find us The Troopany Show, where you can keep The Troopany Show free forever for everyone. Thank you to our Patreon members who keep us on the air, on SoundCloud, and around all of the best places you can get your podcast from. We're not sure what we're looking at next week. I think it might be some New Japan Strong, New Japan Cup US action. We'll see what happens there and see what we can come up with. But thank you very much for listening today. 
Take care, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.